it's worth remembering that every place on Earth, sooner or later, is going to go through these same sets of processes, or they're going to be in for a really hard time. And that there's a way in which you can actually make not only a great place, but a great example. You're listening to Think Revelstoke, a show about the future of tourism in Revelstoke and the greatest challenges of today's tourism destinations, along with the most inspiring solutions. We're speaking to you from beautiful Revelstoke, British Columbia, a city on the territory of four nations where we live, work and adventure, the Sinaiks, the Shwepmek, the Silks and the Tunaha. I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think. And I'm Robin Goldsmith, Destination and Sustainability Manager at Tourism Revelstoke. As part of this podcast, we're reaching out to experts and leaders in other places to hear their perspective on how we can manage tourism for a better future. Today, we're speaking with Alex Steffen, a climate futurist. Alex, is the future scary or hopeful? Uh, the future is scarily hopeful or hopefully scary. I'm not sure. No, I mean, the, the future is a mix, right? We, have, we face a huge number of challenges, uh, some of them enormous in their scale, but we also have an enormous number of solutions to meet those challenges with. And, you know, we are beginning at least to tackle the challenges we face in a serious way. And that, that should give everyone at least some optimism. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background as we get started today? Sure. Uh, I came to this work as a climate journalist. Uh, I was uh, early in the field. I started working as an environment climate reporter in the early 90s and uh, reported for a number of newspapers and then in public radio, uh, and then went on to uh, edit a publication called World Changing, which focused on sustainability solutions, um, and did that for another basically decade. And then I moved on to doing consulting and futurism and, and strategy and thinking about how do we make better choices given what we now know. So Alex, the climate era will underpin everything going forward. And most people, I think, don't realize how much we've benefited from a stable climate. Um, can you talk about that and describe um, how you see the snap forward? Yeah. So we uh, have had the luxury of relative stability um, in terms of climate, in terms of the environment, of relative stability for about 10,000 years. Um, so about the entire time that... Uh, that humanity has developed civilization, we've been in the Holocene, an era of, you know, in terms of climate, at least, relative stability. And we've based all of the ways that we've built up our communities, agriculture, our relationship to the land, the way we, uh, you know, gather resources and make things and, and trade, all of that is based on this relatively stable climate. In the last hundred years, we've changed that, and especially in the last 30, we've gone into sort of a hyperdrive where we are uh, not only heating the planet, but making it much less stable in a variety of ways, not just through climate change and ocean acidification, but also ecosystems themselves are changing. Species are moving. Um, we've introduced a lot of toxins into the world. We've depleted habitats and, and, uh, and overfished the oceans. All of these things have led to the, the emergence of what's really a new planet, 
Um, we live in our same the same world that we've lived in, but it, that world is now on a different planet, so to speak. Um, and many of the kinds of assumptions and uh, you know expertise and, and experience that all of us have gathered is really expertise of another time. It's it's we've gone through a discontinuity. Um, so what we've known about the world is no longer such a good guide for what we need to do now. We're all learning again. One of the concepts that you write a lot about is a concept of the carbon bubble. And I think that's really relevant to the travel industry. And we, you know, as, as we've talked about, this show coincides uh, work that Tourism Revelstoke is doing to build a very long-term uh, destination management plan thinking 50 years out. So the way we currently move around in the world is largely dependent on transportation that emits greenhouse gases. We're thinking about 2073 and thinking about how once people will arrive in Revelstoke, they also are here to enjoy our natural amenities and, you know, produce emissions in destination as well. And in some cases, you know, we've got long-haul aviation and there aren't really great solutions to that at the moment. And then there's, um, you know, the excess emissions from being away from home. Can you talk about the carbon bubble and, and how you think this plays out for the travel industry? Yeah. So the fundamental notion of the carbon bubble is that we value fossil fuel energy and systems that are dependent on fossil fuels um, as if we could go on doing things the way we're doing them now for a very long time. But we know that for climate and other reasons, we're going to have to greatly curtail our fossil fuel use. In fact, we're, we're already well underway in that process. And because we can't afford to burn all of the fossil fuels that we know exist, those assets are worthless, right? Um, that we have a bubble in the valuation of, of those assets. Uh, on top of that, um, we know that many of the systems that are most dependent on fossil fuels, for example, at the moment, flying, um, are going to become more expensive or more difficult or both. And so, you know, a carbon bubble itself is just a description of the overvaluation of assets we can't afford to and don't want to use anymore. But it really extends into this notion that wherever we're heavily dependent on fossil fuels, we're going to see big changes happen in a relatively short period of time. We are a destination marketing organization, so we run uh, in an environment that's really stakeholder-driven. Um, we don't run or operate any tourism businesses in Revelstoke, but um, help them grow, promote, um, and, and help their, their businesses run in Revelstoke. Um, so you work with businesses and advise them on adapting to the future. Um, so if you could speak to our stakeholders, um, what are some of the things that you think tourism businesses would benefit from knowing about the future? Well, on the one hand, there are a bunch of pressures on the industry, right? Not least of which is, is the need to cut emissions, um, but also pressures on supply lines, on critical infrastructure being impacted by, by climate and environmental effects, you know, wildfires, for example. Um, there are a lot of like, ways in which it's going to be harder to travel and more expensive and maybe less rarely done or less frequently done than it is today. Um, you know, I'm not sure that we're going to have a uh, transportation that looks exactly like what we have today in 25 or 30 years, um, much less 50. That said, I mean, people 
travel for a reason. People always have traveled, right? Um, some of the oldest stories we have are of people traveling um, to find new experiences, to meet new people, etc. And as the pressures on travel become slightly greater and then perhaps a lot greater, I think what we're going to see is not the elimination of travel, but rather a more conscious intention of going places to experience those places. So instead of maybe you know, a ski weekend, maybe a longer stay in which some mix of, of you know, vacation and work and other things happen. Um, I think that could be facilitated by sort of the untethering of the office experience that I, I don't think we're going to go back to where we were before. Um, I, I just don't think everybody's going to go back to the office. Uh, certainly people who are in the commercial real estate industry think that too, um, you know, that we're, we're in some sort of permanent semi-work-from-home stage, which also means work from other places for a lot of people, especially younger people. Um, so I think that there, it's not a uniformly negative picture at all. And I really see people having a, a, a beyond a just sort of ecotourism you know, interest, um, or affinity, uh, having a desire to go places where the fact that they are going somewhere to travel, to vacation, to, you know, um, to do sports and so forth, uh, like where that is seen as a part of their identity, that's positive, that the nature of that place is good, right? That they're, they're doing, they're part of something cool by being there. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to craft those kinds of experiences to make sense in a world where people are increasingly aware of the impacts of what they do. When you read about climate change, things can get quite scary quite quickly and our human brains often uh, tend to disconnect from that and, and focus back on the world immediately around us. One of the things that I think that climate presents is opportunity and with any change comes opportunity. If we take a really optimistic spin and think about Revelstoke, it's a town of around 10,000 people. Hundreds of thousands of people come here to ski and enjoy the mountains in summer. It's a very beautiful place in a little valley, you know, four or five hours from two big cities. What's the best case scenario for a town like ours? Well, I think the best case scenario is that a very conscious attempt to grapple with the challenges that are emerging um, has been taken. And in particular, you know, there are some problems that, that just need to be responded to pretty forcefully, right? They need to be really grappled with. Um, increasingly, there's a need for ecological ruggedization and climate ruggedization in places all around the world. So, you know, taking efforts to protect the town from wildfire, from flood, um, you know, from extreme heat, etc. But in the doing of that, you also create a place that not only has, I mean, in the long run, those investments pay off, right? It, it is a great investment to prevent big damage, <laughs> to prevent the loss of something. Um, but on top of that, I think there's, it's worth remembering that every place on earth, sooner or later, is going to go through these same sets of processes, or they're going to be in for a really hard time. And that there's a way in which you can actually make not only a great place, but a great example. And if you do that, then you have something that's an additional, uh, you know, an additional sales point, right? An additional reason why people might want to come, an additional reason why people who are doing that kind of work there, uh, you know, can 
can perhaps uh, have other opportunities elsewhere to share what they've learned. Um, it, it becomes uh, an ad, the earlier you move, the better the advantage is, right? It's, it's an added value to a place that's already pretty cool. We're talking in a moment where there are simultaneous climate amplified weather extremes going on around the world, eastern Canada and Pakistan and the Philippines and Hurricane Ian has just devastated Florida. And I read what I hope is an encouraging example of exactly what you're talking about, a neighbourhood in Florida that the eye of the storm passed directly overhead that has been intentionally built to withstand extreme weather where they have 700,000 solar panels, uh, the, the town's roads are built to channel flooding instead of the houses getting flooding and power cables are, uh, are buried underground all over the, the neighbourhood uh, in order to withstand extreme winds and they haven't lost power and, you know, their houses haven't been torn apart and flooded. And when I think about economic development, I think about uh, how that type of ruggedization and in intentionality in, in designing for the future will be a huge competitive ad advantage. And even thinking about, tra even thinking about travel and, and where people uh, choose to go, you know, looking for safety. What's the worst case scenario? If we ignore these issues as a community and, as you say, we don't grapple with the challenges around us and we're not forceful with the ecological and other types of ruggedization. Uh, what do you imagine our, our place could look like in, in 50 years? Yeah, well, I mean, the worst case scenario anywhere is, is massive destruction, right? Um, is catastrophic outcomes. Um, that, that could be, you know, a mega fire. It could be, uh, you know, an atmospheric river um, resulting in, in really serious flooding and landslides and so forth. It could be an extended heat wave. It could be a combination of all three of those things. Um, you know, protecting any given place against what is now more likely to happen is really important because it's very hard and it's going to only get harder to recover from situations where, you know, a lot of damage is done and rebuilding is, you know, is always more expensive, more difficult and does more long-term damage to the economy than avoiding the need to rebuild in the first place, right? So the worst case scenario is, you know, is is a really bad catastrophe that could have been avoided or at least mitigated. But after that, I think the next worst case scenario is just that there is so much pressure on travel and on on uh, and on the experience of travel, and there's so much concern about how bad the crisis has gotten. Since it's, we know no matter what we do at this point, it's going to get a lot worse just from what we've already done. That travel, and especially travel to remote places, you know, or what is what are perceived as remote places, just becomes a lot less of a priority for a lot of people who, you know, even those who have the means to do that. And where, you know, rural economies are harder hit, um, it's harder to keep roads open, it's harder to keep, you know, uh, medical and social services going, um, you know, budgets are stretched thin, uh, and there's just sort of a general decline. Um, there's already a lot of that kind of problem down here in the Sierra in California, where there are towns that are really struggling with this combination of, of, of things already. Um, and so, you know, look 50 years ahead, and we could easily see a situation where it's just pretty hard to keep 
a viable economy going um, if preparations haven't been made. So, so many people have, have had the luxury of traveling in the last few decades as they enter the middle class and upper middle class where, you know, historically travel was really only something for the very, very elite, you know, and going back centuries just for kings and queens. In your thinking and your work, what do you imagine happens to our middle class as the climate era continues to unfold around us? Well, it depends still a lot on what we do. The, the extent to which we mitigate the worsening of the crisis from here, you know, by, by cutting emissions and raising standards, um, matters a lot to the outcome in 50 years especially. But also it matters how fully we engage the need to respond. Um, that are we creating more places that are rugged, that are prepared for the future that we've created, um, or are we just letting places kind of get hit one after another? Um, and I think there's signs of both futures, honestly, right now. I mean, I think the example you mentioned, um, I'm forgetting the name of that community, but it's a great story, uh, you know, just a few miles away from Fort Myers, which got, you know, really badly hit. Here we have this, you know, place that ruggedized ahead of time that, you know, has local power and so forth. Well, those are two futures, really. And, the, you know, depending on which we get and how bad the overall crisis becomes, things could be very different. We could have, actually, you know, a green boom. We could have a situation in which we have to live differently, but we live better as on, on the whole, where we have a healthy economy and it's sustainable. Um, but we could also have a situation in which the, you know, the, the upper middle class planet, you know, in terms of in planetary terms really shrinks and where people are hard pinched and it's just a lot harder to get ahead than it is today. Um, some of the extreme values for, um, you know, for losses under future scenarios where we don't move quickly, uh, you know, are in the trillions of dollars a year. I mean, they're massive losses to the economy. Um, and so, you know, if on the one hand, if, if a green boom is possible, it's also possible we could have a pretty, uh, you know, a, a, a brittle, like ongoing recession, you know, a recession of impacts and damages. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to see that world being one that produces a lot of people who are doing well. Um, somebody's always going to do well. There's always opportunities, but, you know. We'll probably land somewhere between those two. And it'll be different by geography. The, the name of the community in, in Florida was, was Babcock Ranch. If you were mayor of Revelstoke uh, right now, where would you be looking to for examples of how to ruggedize the community? Yeah. Well, so the big thing that, that in my mind, here's, here, here are the things that, you, that you'd want to think about up front. So first of all, you'd want to think about what are the sources of brittleness around you, right? So that starts at the top. Like, what are the things that actually literally endanger the town, right? Is that a wildfire? Is it a flood? But then it goes into things like infrastructure, right? Um, most places uh, that, that have sort of a uh, kind of a resort economy, um, you know, are dependent on, on, you know, roads and other infrastructure that stretches out quite a long ways, which makes it more brittle to interruption than places that are close by the things they need. So you'd want to be thinking about how do you make sure that that infrastructure is protected and upgraded and, you know, well-managed so that, you know, people can get there and goods can get there and they, it can stay connected to the economy 
uh, to the global economy, if you will. Um, but beyond that, then there's, there's the questions of how do you make sure that folks there have what they need, right? Um, obviously, there's the need to provision visitors, but there's also just making sure that folks there have what they need. Every place has different has a different mix of things, but certainly clean energy and energy storage, uh, like local energy and energy storage, are important in terms of increasing the ability to 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 withstand an interruption and bounce back quickly. Right. Um, thinking about water supply and about the ability to provide water under extreme drought conditions, at least make it through through the summer. Um, you know, thinking about to some extent, at least, uh, local food, um, what kinds of things can, can uh, you know, we're not talking about the end of the world, right? We're not talking about uh, a Mad Max situation. But, you know, there can be times, like right now, um, where food gets more expensive, you know, supply chains are interrupted, um, harvests are blocked. Uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of, of food scarcity worldwide over this winter, um, and you know, it's, it's good to be able to have not just a fallback, but, but that connection to food growing and food preparation. Um, you know, there's sets of things like that building standards, right? So fire safe and well insulated, um, helps both in the winter and in the summer, uh, makes it easier to cool and so forth. Uh, you know, thinking about heat Island effect, to the extent that that's a problem, like, are there street trees, you know, are there, is there green infrastructure or, you know, is our, you know, our parking lots spreading everywhere? Um, you know, these kinds of things all help. Uh, I think that one of the things that might be interesting to look at is what are the European equivalents, right? So what, I don't know, but what, what places in Europe are very much like the situation you face and what are people doing there? Because in general, the conversation, particularly about sustainability is farther ahead in Europe than it is in North America. Um, so it might be interesting to just see what, what are the equivalents, you know, but also maybe thinking about what happens if, you know, if the kinds of natural amenities, I mean, snowfall for that matter, uh, are just more unpredictable, less reliable. What are the economic resilience methods that can be taken on like how do you you know extend the the economy of the place through a number of different ways to keep it working even when you know one sector has a bad season say um does that make sense to you absolutely i think there's some great advice in there so alex i i was not as familiar with your work uh coming into this so it had a little bit of a browse on your website and one of the things that really resonated with me um was that you talk about wanting to be a good ancestor and here we are thinking um, 50 years into the future, but I feel like that that statement really reaches a long ways into the future when you think about, you know, future generations. So I'm curious how you think we could put the concept um, of being good ancestors into practice for future generations here in Revelstoke or elsewhere in the world. Yeah, well, I would I would say there, there are two things worth thinking about. Um, the first is that we are headed into we're in already now a pretty rough period of time for a lot of people. And it is really important that we have as many anchor points, places where people are coming together to make a better situation, to ruggedize against disaster, um, to, you know, prepare for uh, pr a sustainable prosperity 
um, that it's really important to have places that work. And the more places that work, the better off everyone on the entire planet is going to be. So the first thing is sort of, you know, making sure that, that, uh, that what's around can be sustained in, in the near term, um, can be made better and, and more rugged for the future. The second thing is my definition of sustainability personally is the, is leaving the next generations, the greatest number of options. Some of that is obviously taking care of irreplaceable natural abundance, right? Um, making sure that as we go into the future, the, the full set of species that were there when we were born are there when we go, right? Um, that places of great beauty are preserved um, and, and so forth. Uh, but also, you know, preserving heritage and preserving um, traditions and connections, um, you know, finding ways of life that that lay very lightly on the land, you know, as lightly as is possible in, in this world. Um, and that can perhaps be replicated and improved over time so that there's, you know, a, a, a foundation there for people three, four, five, six, seven generations from now, still being able to live well where you live today. Um, I think those are, those are important connections. I mean, it, it's all about, ultimately, it's all about what is there when we're gone, right? Um, that's the ultimate test of being a good ancestor is what, you know, what do people have left to work with? Or what do they have to work with, to work with that wasn't even there before? What was made and created for them. Um, and I also think that places that are doing that are increasingly attractive to a lot of really, you know, dedicated, hardworking, principled, smart, creative, successful people. And that, you know, if you want to draw interesting neighbors and, and, you know, new investment for businesses and talented people and, and, and so forth, if that's part of what you're looking for, creating a place where people can feel like they're making a difference by living there, I think is actually a very, very smart move. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I think there's so much in what you've told us that we need to reflect on as we plan for the future. My pleasure. So, Rodney, thanks for suggesting that we invite Alex onto the podcast. Uh, I was not familiar with his work, and I found that um, really enlightening. I was. I'm. I'm glad you enjoyed having him with us because uh, I'm conscious that you know I have a, a deep concern about climate, and that can be perceived as bias. But I, I really do think, as we're long-term planning, we need to be recognizing the massive shifts going on around that are very different the last 10,000 years that we've had climate stability and we need to be planning. I had a, a little bit of um, fear coming into this conversation. Maybe fear is not the right word, but I was just like, oh, it's a beautiful sunny afternoon and this is just going to be a bummer. Uh, and I actually found Alex, um, you know, to be, to be realistic, but I, I found some hope in what he was saying and, and some reassurance that um, we're moving in the right path with um, efforts towards regenerative tourism, particularly when he spoke about what, you know, travelers in the future might look like, which is people um, moving to places to really connect with the place and, and stay a little longer. And I think that's something we've been moving towards in, in Revelstoke, and I, I expect to see even 
more movement towards in our in our marketing efforts and our destination management efforts. So that was sort of gratifying to hear that that fits not just with our values in terms of um, in terms of the community, but also in in terms of our value with respect to the climate. He had a great line that sticks with me, that we need to create a place where people really feel like they're making a difference. And I think that's obvious in terms of travellers, but also people who are living here, right? We, I, I, I like to hope that as humans, we, we want to leave the world as a better place for the next generation. And I think that the travel comes with great privilege and we should use that privilege both as a destination and as the people visiting to, to help further, you know. Yeah, I think it, um, it speaks to what we talk about as one of the enriching experiences of travel is that exchange with the broader world. Um, and if we can create a rebel stoke in which uh, people, people learn to become ambassadors for our planet as a whole, um, that that really spread something positive from Revelstoke to the world at large and, and hopefully we can bring people here who have ideas and, and want to exchange um, exchange with with us on these broader concepts. Um, another thing he uh, he spoke about it's I you know we started getting him into 50 years in the future and, and our ancestors but I actually found found he had um, I took away some sort of tangible actions in terms of what we should be doing now. And he spoke a lot about not wanting to um, be cut off in terms of transit and ruggedization. And for us in Revelstoke, that is that is such a huge one. And and it makes me think, you know, what can we do right now? Um, maybe as a small city, we don't have a lot of um, sway with respect to provincial corridors and the government there. But it's certainly something we should be advocating for um, is climate proofing or at least making our uh, transportation corridors more climate resilient. And emergency planning, which is where it's going to be really interesting to talk to Mike Flanagan on next week's show and talk to him about tourism's, you know, interrelated role in emergency. Yeah. This has been Think Revelstoke, presented by Tourism Revelstoke and Destination Think. Our hosts are Robin Goldsmith and Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer, Lindsay Payne and Annika Rautiola provided production support. Our show comes from the beautiful city of Revelstoke, British Columbia, Canada, located on the land of the Sinaixt, the Shishwetmek, the Silix, and the Tunaha. You can help this show by subscribing to future episodes and by leaving a review. Next time, we'll speak with Dr. Mike Flanagan, a BC-based expert in wildfire and emergency management. See you then.